It is good to be back again with you guys, and if this is your first time or first time in a long time, uh, we are continuing in a long, long series. Uh, it's actually lasting a year. Travis asked me last week, how long is this whole thing, this series lasting? He thought it was going to be kind of indefinite for the, until I retire, hopefully 50 years from now. And so, um, uh, but we did start it back in the fall. It's a series we've called The Big Story, where we are going through the big story of Scripture, uh, Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories that are tying together the one story of Scripture. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount today, kind of like Travis kicked it off last week. And if you're here with us last week, you can go ahead and turn there. But um, he mentioned that if you've spent any time in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, these next couple of chapters, uh, you know how deep and meaty these, these next couple of chapters are, right? I, like pastors and, and, and churches, they'll spend an entire semester teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, if not a whole entire year, which we may do at some point in the future. Um, but uh, that's how much you can do. We're not going to go that far with it this morning. We're going to focus on the first 12 verses in chapter 5. It's this section of the Sermon on the Mount uh, that Jesus preaches. It's affectionately called the Beatitudes. Uh, it's Latin for blessed. And the reason that is is because the entire section, this entire sermon is all about the blessings of God and the blessed life that you can have in him. And so that's incredible news because now when you're in church and everybody's just like, oh, I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed. Be blessed, brother. You're going to know a little bit of kind of what they're talking about, right? Like this is a word that we use a whole lot in church circles a lot that kind of, it takes on a lot of different meanings, doesn't it? I mean, we talk about I mean, the first thing when you sneeze, like the first thing that someone says is God bless you. Right? And you're not really thinking about it. You're not actually like genuinely meaning, I hope and pray God's blessing be upon you or anything like that. But like, it's the first thing that kind of comes out of our mouth. You go and you sit down with your family at night. You're having a dinner or you're having a meal. Or, and somebody's going to go and they're going to say a blessing. Like even if you're eating pizza and brownies or something like that, you're still going to maybe definitely say a blessing in that case. But like, that's the first thing that you're going to do. Like you get on Instagram, there's going to be over 89 million hashtags that say hashtag blessed. Right? Like 89 million of them I checked this morning, right? And it's going to be silly things like, okay, my teacher just told me that I'm the greatest student she's ever had. Hashtag blessed. Right? I'm not, like, that was one from this past week. Another one was like, uh, check out my new ride, insert picture of my new Bentley here, and it's going to be like, hashtag blessed. Right? Like, that, that's how we talk about it. That's how we use it. I told you this story uh, a long time ago when I was back in my, my Sewell uh, automotive days, just out of college, I had a customer come into the dealership, and, and she was singing and just giddy about uh, this day, and she's like, I am here to claim my blessing. I am here to claim my blessing, and she comes up to me, and she is singing. She's like, Pastor came and told me that I need to come, and I need to come and claim my blessing this week, and I am here to claim my blessing, so I had a little fun with her, and I was like, okay, so is, ma'am, is your blessing paid for, and uh, she's like, and I'm not kidding you, here's what she says. She goes, oh, honey, you better believe it's been paid for, bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. And I was like, I don't think that's what we're talking about here, right? Like, like I think it's a, a little different kind of a payment, a little different kind of blessing that we're talking about, right? We talk about it in a lot of different ways. And on top of that, like the blessed life or the blessings of God are like the thing that we most desire in our lives, Right? I was reading this, I was watching this podcast um, on Generation Z, you know, I've kind of been on a Generation Z kick lately and stuff, but um, I was listening to this podcast this past week, and they were talking about how this generation, uh, more than any other generation before us, is going to pursue three things ferociously, uh, independent wealth, fame, and an individualized pursuit of personal happiness, meaning we're going to be defining our own pursuit of happiness in some degree or fashion. And I was reading another article this past week, and they were just talking, making this observation, like, this is what we do. Every single time the New Year starts, and every time we sit down and we make New Year resolutions, all we're doing is sitting down and making a brand new plan for how to obtain more happiness this next year than we did in the previous year, right? Like, that's what we do. 
And we all desire it. Like, this is the desire of our heart. Like, I want to be happy. I want to feel happy. We all want these things. And to a degree, it's exactly what Jesus is going to be addressing here in this sermon. Nine times, you're going to hear Jesus say, blessed are the blank. And the word that he's going to use there for blessed is makarios. And as Travis talked about last week, makarios literally means happy or being in your happy place. So at its core, God's blessing at least includes the ability to feel some sort of happiness. But we know from this text that it's so much more than just feeling happy. Like Jesus is going to use this word. He's going to talk about it uh, to talk about the entire realm of human flourishing that is available in right relationship with God. And so that's why Jesus kicks off this passage the way that he does. So if you have your Bibles, let's jump into it this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and all I want to do this morning is I want to talk about who can actually be blessed by God and what specifically that blessing looks like so there's no confusion about what that is and so that you and I do not miss out on that blessing. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, I do want to catch us up a little bit on where we are in the story, not going through the entirety of the Old Testament or anything, but we have turned the page, Old Testament to New Testament, and as we're doing that, We've got to understand this is the exact same God. He has not changed. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the old. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hello, voice went out. Holy Spirit in the new also, right? Like the exact same God, brand new covenant that's about to come into place. Jesus is going to say in Luke chapter 24, this is just after the resurrection and on the road to Emmaus, um, he's going to acknowledge that everything that we have been reading about in the Old Testament, we're talking about like all of the different promises, all of the different stories, the covenants and the laws and the different festivals and all of the different prophecies, everything that we've been reading about um, this past year in the Old Testament has all been leading us and pointing to the perfect life, death, and resurrection that we're going to come to here in the New Testament. And so by the time we get to the Gospels and Matthew opens up, um, he's going to be writing to his largely Jewish audience, and he wants to make sure that all of these different dots are being connected and that we are not missing the different clues that Jesus is actually fulfilling. And so we're going to read things like here in chapter 1 where there's going to be this long, detailed genealogy which is tracing the birth of Christ all the way back through the line of King David and all the way back to Father Abraham, which is exactly what had been prophesied by the Father from the very beginning, right? And we're going to see this whole thing, like chapter 1, verse 22, he's going to say things like, all this took place in order to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And four more times in these first couple chapters, he's going to be saying the exact same thing, that all of this is taking place in order to fulfill what was spoken already through the prophets. Chapter 2, verse 6, he was born in Bethlehem, right? Chapter 2, verse 14, he fled to Egypt. Chapter 2, verse 17, there was great mourning and there was great weeping because King Herod was a psychopath and he was killing all the, all the male babies at that time, which is exactly what Jeremiah prophesied. Uh, he was raised in Nazareth, chapter 2, verse 23. And all of this is going to be in fulfillment of what God had already been preparing people for all along in the Old Testament. By the time we get to chapter 3 in Matthew's gospel, like Matthew's going to make a giant leap from toddler baby Jesus to grown adult Jesus who's going to begin his earthly ministry. Chapter 3 is going to begin with uh, this, this, this famous scene of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit is going to come and descend upon Jesus' head like a dove. You're going to hear the Father's voice. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And that is going to, uh, in some sort of official capacity, kind of send Jesus' earthly ministry off 
um, in some sort of official capacity. Chapter 4, Jesus is going to be swept away uh, by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. He is fasting and being tempted by Satan, and of course he does not fall into temptation. Shortly after that, he recruits his disciples, and then he begins essentially his public ministry where he goes throughout Galilee, the different lands, and he is preaching this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he begins a th- um, kind of... Uh, kind of showing his power and showing his authority through different signs and miraculous wonders and different things like that. And that's where we're going to pick it up here in chapter 5. It's the beginning of Jesus' earthly public ministry, and he's, got a, uh, he's starting to gain a serious following. People are starting to listen to him and pay attention to who he is and what he's seeing, and they're beginning to see that when he teaches, he's teaching as one who has authority. So let's pick it up here in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is reward in heaven. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you, All in all, there's going to be about eight unique groups of people here who are blessed by God, along with a small description of kind of what that blessing actually looks like. So a great way to break it down is kind of in a chart form. If you're a note taker, I broke it down kind of like this. Who is this unlikely group who's actually going to be blessed in the kingdom of God? And then what does that blessing actually look like? Verse 3, it's going to talk about how the poor in spirit are actually blessed. And it's going to say theirs will be the the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, those who mourn, for they're going to be comforted. Verse 5 is the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. Verse 6 is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled and satisfied. Verse 7 is the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Verse 8 is the pure in heart, for they will see God. And verse 9 is the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And verse 10 through 12 is this one kind of combined unique idea. Uh, Blessed are those who are persecuted or insulted or lied about because of righteousness or because of their relationship with God, for they will receive some sort of heavenly reward. The entire thing is best understood through the very first thing that he says. The first thing that he says are, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, the word that he uses here for poor is not talking about necessarily material poverty. Although there can be a strong correlation between material poverty and spiritual poverty. But the word that he uses here is potokos in the Greek, and it literally refers to a beggar who's looking for a handout. Like that's what he's talking about here. It's a beggar who's looking for a handout. It's kind of this onomatopoeia um, where it sounds kind of like what it means. Potokos. It sounds like you're kind of you're spitting on something, or you're kind of potokos and kind of throwing it out there. And that's that's essentially the idea that he's playing out right here. Like potokos or being poor in spirit means men and women, whether you are well off or not, who know how desperate they are for the daily mercy and the daily power of God. That's what we're talking about in, in, in poor in spirit. Now, let me ask you a question. When Jesus is preaching this sermon, who are the people that are in the crowds listening to the sermon? I mean, are we talking like, well, are we talking like upper class, middle class, lower class? And I'll give you a little hint. Like, this isn't a time where there's a whole lot of middle class going on at that time. Like, this is an entire culture of haves and have-nots, right? This is a culture of elites and those who are despised. 
I mean, we saw this at the end of chapter 4. Jesus is traveling throughout Galilee, and he's teaching, and he's healing every kind of sickness and disease among the people. When you're doing that, who do you think is going to follow you? All right, that's what he says, chapter 4, verse 24. News about him spread all over Syria. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases and those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and those who were paralyzed, and he healed them. And it says that large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan began to follow him. That is who is sitting and listening to Jesus teach as he preaches his sermon. Overwhelmingly, it is the Patokos of the world. It is the have-nots in society. But they're not the only ones that are there listening to Jesus. right? They're not the only ones in the crowd. The other part of the crowd that's beginning to get curious about who he actually is are all the haves in the world, right? We're talking about the Sadducees and the Pharisees and these religious elite that are also the political elite at that day. And these are the cultural elite of that day. Do you guys remember a few weeks ago we talked about this, but like what's the problem that arises during the 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament? You guys remember what we talked about here? Like it's it's an incredible amount of legalism, right? It's this empty religiosity that takes place between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. Like, Israel has learned their lesson at this point in time, right? Like, they've just spent 70 years, Judah, uh, the southern part of the kingdom, has just spent 70 years in captivity at the hands of the Babylonians. And then the Greeks, uh, uh, sorry, the, first there's the Assyrians in the northern, then the Babylonians. we got the Medes and the Persians taken over. They've just experienced 70 years in captivity because of their idolatry and their idolatrous practices before God. Like, at this point in time, they've learned their lesson. They're not falling back into idolatry. The problem that they have is now that they come back, they fail to pass on the heart of worship to the, pre, to the following generations, and they fall into this empty religiosity. And so what takes place is there's 400 years of silence between the end of Malachi to the beginning of the New Testament. So there's nothing new coming from the Word. All they have to go on is everything that God has already given to them in the prophets and all the previous writings, right? All they have to go on is what's already been giving. Nothing new is coming on. And so what's taking place is that they are grabbing onto the law and they are choking it to death by creating this system of self-justification that is dependent upon obedience to some sort of a moral code. That's what, that's what legalism is. And so what ends up taking place is uh, there's a whole lot of pride and there's a whole lot of self-righteousness. It's all wrapped up in a very man-centered view of religion. Church, that's what he's attacking here in this passage, right? Like, that's what he's going after. It's the self-sufficient. It's the self-righteous. It's the morally and intellectually superior versus the patokos of the world. Uh, And what he is saying is that the kingdom of heaven actually depends upon which camp you find yourself in. Like, that's what he's saying. Like, it depends upon which camp you find yourself in. Are you among the spiritually impoverished? Are you among the patokos of the world? Are you in this elite category here that has no need? It's exactly why Jesus is always pitting these two groups against each other, and he's kind of pitting them up there and throwing them out there, giving you these different examples of what each camp actually looks like so that you can know which camp you're actually in. It's Luke chapter 18. It says that the whole passage begins with this. I love this passage. It says that he's speaking to a group of people who are confident in their own righteousness and look down upon everybody else. Like that's how the whole passage begins. He's speaking to a group of people who are confident in their own righteousness and they love looking down on other people. And so he begins to tell them the story of a tax collector and a Pharisee who go into the temple to pray. And it says that the Pharisee goes to him by himself and he prays, God, thank you that I'm not like these other people over here, these robbers, these evildoers, these adulterers, or even like this tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything that I've got. 
but the tax collector was off by himself at a distance, and he couldn't even look up to heaven. He says that he beat his chest, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And check out what Jesus says. I tell you that this man, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Which is exactly what Jesus just said a few verses later, where he says, uh, blessed are the meek, uh, blessed are those who humble themselves, blessed are those who constantly take second place, blessed are those who give up their rights for the sake of other people and for the glory of God, for they will inherit the earth, meaning uh, when Christ returns, God is going to give them some sort of rule or authority. In other words, he who humbles himself will be exalted. But church, bottom line, what we're seeing here at the beginning of this entire sermon is that Jesus is kicking this off saying, the blessed and the flourishing life begins in recognition that even though I'm physically blessed, even though that I am living here in North Dallas, even though I went to Texas A&M, gigam and whoop, right? Like even though I have this degree and I've got this degree over here, even though that I've attended church pretty much every single Sunday since the time I was a little child, like I am still spiritually patokos and in desperate need of his power and his grace every single day. And that's a problem for us, right? Because it's just not how we naturally feel. I mean, it's an enormous problem because like, most of us spend the majority of our lives trying to be anything but spiritually impoverished. Like, it's just not what we do. I'll never forget a conversation I had a, a number of years ago with a guy. We were talking about the gospel, and we were going through a number of these different points, and I was trying to teach him and help him understand the concept of grace. Like, this is a foreign concept in the world in which we live, and I was, kinda, I was having him read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by God's grace that you are saved. It is undeserved favor. You did not deserve it, but God gives you this gift of salvation anyway. It is by God's grace that you are saved, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no man can boast. And I'm trying to explain this whole concept, bro. It is nothing that you're bringing to the table. It has nothing to do with the amount of, uh, of morality that you have. It has nothing to do with the amount of good works or the things that you've done in your past. You're not condemned by those things, and you're not justified by those things either. It is a free gift of salvation. It is a free gift of favor that God generously offers to you. And as I'm explaining to him this concept, like, I'll never forget the expression on his face. Like, I thought that this was incredible news. Right? Like, I thought that the, 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 the message of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, like, typically that makes people sing, Right? And he, the, the, the dude is just like wrestling in his soul, and he's just kind of cringing. And, and finally, I asked him about it, and I was like, hey, what, what's going on? Like, how are you, what do you think about any of this stuff? And he goes, Aaron, I hate that idea. I hate it. And he goes, I've been taught my entire life to never take charity from anyone. Like, I've been taught, my, my dad taught me this, that, that if I ever receive a gift from somebody, I better do whatever it takes to pay back that gift. Right? Does anybody else identify with this kind of idea? Like, I, I, I love helping other people. I hate being a place where I need help. Like, I love giving charity. I hate it when charity is given unto me. Like, I, I, I hate feeling poor in anything, right? Like, I, I resist it. I do not want to feel poor in anything. I, just, I mean, just look at the different quotes that are inspiring a generation today. Like, if anything, we take a look at these quotes and these different things that are kind of inspiring us today, and they are proving that, if anything, we want to be more desperate or more, we, are, we want to be rich in spirit more than anything else or at least middle class in spirit or something like that. But like, no one is you, and that's your superpower. This is taken from a number of quotes that are like all on my Instagram feed, social media feed. This is, this is the thing that we're motivated by and, and kind of put out there a whole lot today. Like, no one is you, and that's your superpower. What if you simply devoted this year to loving yourself more? To fall in love with yourself is the secret to obtaining happiness. Like, you are worthy. You're capable like, you're beautiful. Book the ticket. Write the book. Create the dream. Celebrate yourself. Rule your kingdom, church. 
rule your kingdom. And I could just keep going on and on and on, but like that's what we feed on. And spiritual poverty is just not something that we naturally embrace. And I want to be really, really clear about what we're talking about. When we're talking about spiritual poverty or being poor in spirit, like we are not talking about insecurity, passivity, or self-pity. Like we're not talking about a bunch of self-loathing people who are insecure and have absolutely no drive to succeed. We're talking about world changers like Martin Luther, uh, the great Protestant reformer who would spend hours every single day in confession because he gets it in light of a holy God. He is comparatively impoverished and in desperate need for his grace to be unleashed in his life. Like we're talking about world changers like Billy Graham, the greatest evangelist that the world has ever known, who, who rightly acknowledged that the secret to his success is the time that he spent on his knees crying out to God for his spirit to be unleashed in his life. Like that's the secret to his success. It's not like all the study. It's not the fact that he's like 6'4 and 6'5 and like powerful and commanding. Like here's what he says. I love this quote from me. He says, the Christian life is not a constant high. I've had... In- Many moments of deep discouragement, I regularly have to go to God in prayer with tears in my eyes and say, Oh God, forgive me. Help me, oh God. And every time I do that, it's exactly what he does. I can see Apostle Paul, the the author of half of the New Testament and the greatest missionary that the world has ever known when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, like, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamity. I'm content with those things because when I am weak, then I'm actually strong. Church, that's what we're talking about here. It's men and it's women, whether you're rich or you're poor, you're educated or not, successful or not, healthy or not, who rightly understand that when you come to the Lord God in poverty, he never leaves you impoverished. Right? Are you with me like here? It's, it, it's why he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, because theirs is actually the kingdom of heaven. Church, the kingdom of heaven is not just this faraway place that we go one day when we die. Like the kingdom of heaven is the entire realm of his authority and his reign. So to say that anybody else is going to inherit that thing is another way of saying that the blessing of spiritual poverty is the fact that when you come to him in spiritual poverty, you actually get God. Like that's the reward of the blessed life. That's what this is. It is the whole realm of human flourishing that is available in right relationship with God. It's why he's able to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's so much more than just being happy, right? Blessed are those who mourn. If you're mourning, you're not feeling happy in that moment, right? But you're blessed because in that moment, you still have God, and God in his infinite love sees fit to bring you comfort. Like church, like comfort requires companionship, does it not? Like you can't be comforted unless you have a companion there to come and to bring you comfort. Like, what's the one promise that he's been saying from the very beginning of this story that you've heard probably 15 times in my preaching? Like, he is the with us God, right? Like, Exodus chapter 3, fear not, Moses, for I'm going to be with you. Joshua 1.5, like, as I was with Moses, Joshua, so I will be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength. The Lord our God is with us. Matthew 1.23, the virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Church, Jesus continues this. John chapter, four, or John chapter 16, I love this passage. Like he's preparing his disciples, and his disciples are mourning right now because he's just told them that he's about to pass away, and he's about to leave them there on earth. Right? He's just predicted his own death, burial. He's predicted his crucifixion. He said that he's going to ascend to the heavenlies, and his disciples are terrified by this whole thing. And here's what he says. He says, I tell you the truth, it's actually better for you that I go. Because if I don't, then the helper won't be able to come to you. The Holy Spirit won't be able to come to you, is what he says. You know what the word is there that he calls for the Holy Spirit, the parakletos? You know what that means? It's a comforter. 
It literally means the comforter. It's better for you that I go because if I don't go, then the comforter, the Holy Spirit, won't be able to come to you. Uh, that's the promise. He is the with us God who gives us his spirit, whose name is the comforter, who is with us always there in your morning providing comfort. Church, there is no comfort apart from companionship, and that's who he is. He is the with us God. Like Hebrews is going to make this argument that Jesus is able to provide a superior comfort over other high priests and the like because he is able to empathize with our weaknesses since he was tempted in every single way and still did not sin. Like that's his whole argument. Like Jesus is able to provide a much better comfort because he knows our pain. He experienced our pain. He condescended from heaven. He took on flesh. He went through the exact same things that you and I went through. So church, some of you are right there in that place right now. Like you are in the middle of mourning. Like you were in the middle of this, this painful season where you were crying out and you're going, okay, does anybody know the pain that I'm feeling with church? And what he's saying is here that, that Jesus is able to provide a superior comfort Because God, though he was rich, did not see fit to stay rich. He condescended from heaven and he took on flesh. And he went through everything that you and I have been through. He knows the sting of loss. He knows what betrayal feels like. He knows the allure of temptation. He was there tempted by Satan for 40 days while he was fasting and praying unto God. Like he knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to to cry with a friend who's just lost someone that they love. He knows. And it's exactly why the author of Hebrews is going to continue to say, he's going to say, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Not confidence in yourself, right? Like not confidence because, hey God, here's how awesome I am and here's how faithful I've been and here's how many gifts that you've given to me and here's how how great I've been with all of these different things. Not confidence in yourself, but confidence in him. Knowing that when you come to him and you are in Christ and you come to him in your poverty, he never leaves you impoverished. He provides mercy and grace to help in your time of need. That is the blessing of his comfort. And on top of that, like he's already told us how the entire story ends, right? Like he doesn't just leave you with, it's not just his companionship there. Like he's already promised that theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Like he's already promised that the story's going to end well, church. Like, you know how this whole thing is going to end. Like, what you've got right here on this earth, these 50, 60, 80, 90, 100 years, maybe less, maybe more, probably not more than 100, but like, like this, what we are experiencing right here, like, this is not as good as it gets. And we've talked about this a thousand times, but church, like, when you know how a story ends and you know that your story ends well, like, fear and anxiety have a way of just melting away quickly. Like, I've talked about it, like, it's like watching a game on a DVR. Some of you are watching March Madness and everything right now. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like when you know that your team already won, it has a way of, uh, of making sure that the fear and anxiety of that game just melts away. I'll never forget this. I've told this story a few times, but I love it. 2006, the Gators win the national championship. I'm a huge Florida Gator fan in football, and I was out of the country for this time and decided to, to, to record this game back home, and I wanted to watch it when I got home, and I made it the entire trip. Never turned on the TV, never got on the line. I had no idea who won the game. We get back to the airport, and the guy picking me up from the airport, he calls me and is like, hey, how about them gators? Like, ruins the whole thing for me, right? I'm back in the airport, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I made it two weeks without knowing the end of this game, and now all of a sudden. But then I'm like, hey, we won. This is incredible. So I get back home, and I'm watching this game by myself. And um, the opening kickoff, Ted Ginn from Ohio State, like, he returns the opening kickoff 100 yards for a touchdown. And I'm not kidding you, like the entire stadium is erupting in celebration. They're going nuts. Like OSU fans are high-fiving each other, and I'm just sitting there watching the game, kind of laughing to myself, going, you don't know what I know. <laughs> like, that, like, that's what we're talking about. Like, when you know how the story ends, I promise you, like, fear and sadness has a way of quickly melting away. 
It's why Paul's able to say things like, for I am convinced that the sufferings of this present time, Paul, who suffered more than any of us could ever suffer, I am convinced that the sufferings of this present time, like they're not worthy to be compared to the glories that are still to come. Even at the end of Jesus' sermon here in the Beatitudes, like how are people blessed who are persecuted and insulted for the sake of Christ? Unless you know that the best is still to come. Like, none of this makes any sense unless these things are certain. That's how he brings comfort. When we come to him in the poverty of spirit, we get God. We get his companionship. We get the whole realm of his flourishing and blessing that's found in his kingdom rule. And I promise you, church, when we come to him in poverty, he never leaves you impoverished. Like, he continues on in the sermon and he says, Blessed are the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. And I have no idea exactly what that's going to look like. It is this mysterious blessing that you're sitting there going, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but evidently when Christ returns, there's going to be some sort of ruler authority that's given to you that you're probably going to want. This is kind of the attitude to take with any kind of heavenly rewards or eternal blessings that, that God offers us. We're sitting there going, okay, I don't know exactly what those things really, really look like. I can't imagine needing any kind of reward in the presence of God. However, if God is offering these things, then I'm just going to trust that it's probably something that I want. And it's probably going to be something that's great, that's going to be lasting for all of eternity. I mean, it's what he's saying here, like, blessed are the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, 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 who continually and intentionally lower themselves for the sake of other people and for the sake of the glory of God. Blessed are those who willingly take second place. Blessed are those who don't always need the main stage. Blessed are those who don't always need the spotlight, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled and satisfied. Church, I, this is probably my favorite one. Like, can you imagine what it's like to feel satisfied? Like, I say this all the time. Like, can you imagine what it's like to, to truly know contentment and satisfaction? Like, I'm talking about the feeling just after Thanksgiving. You know what I'm talking about? Like, Thanksgiving meal is done, and, like, like your stomach's full, and you ate way too much cake and pie and the turkey or dressing, and maybe you're kind of like my house, well, we're moving more to a steaks kind of a thing for for Thanksgiving, and you know what I'm talking about, you go and you crash on the couch, and the cowboys are on, and they're probably winning, of course, like, like it's that feeling of satisfaction, you're sitting there going like everything is great in the world, I don't have to go to work the next day, I don't have school the next day, or anything like that, like can you imagine what it's like to truly know satisfaction and contentment, like do you guys remember this article, I talked about it a long time ago, it's from Psychology Today, and we talked about three common needs that we all have, the need to feel morally clean or righteous, the need to feel safe, and the need to feel significant. I mean, this article just talks about these three things, and they say these are the three common needs that all of humanity has, and if we are missing any one of them, then it'll often send us spiraling out of control, this need to feel morally clean or righteous, this need to feel safe, and this need to feel significant. Church, what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that he satisfies the deepest longings of your soul. I mean, just listen to how Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, gone down this path a lot with you guys. I love this passage. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news. Good news. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. In other words, church, like you have a need to feel morally good. 
You have a need to feel morally clean or, or righteous. Like the truth of the matter is that in Christ, he has literally washed you clean. He has literally washed you and made you clean. Church, like when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith in the poverty of your spirit, he never just leaves you feeling impoverished. You have been justified and declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning he has declared that you are righteous not because you are and not because you've done righteous things, but because you've come to him and he has gifted you his righteousness. On top of that, he also gifts you his Holy Spirit, that which then comes into your life and begins to produce righteousness inside of you. He gives it all to you. You need to feel morally clean and righteous, like he's taking care of it. He's completely washed you and made you clean. Like you need to feel safe. Like when you came to him in the poverty of the Holy in the poverty of your spirit, like you were sanctified. Meaning that you were literally set apart by God and you were considered holy by him. So therefore, yours will be the kingdom of heaven. You were literally sanctified and set apart. He calls you holy. He declares that you are righteous so you can be certain that yours will be the kingdom of heaven. Church, he's told you how the entire thing is going to end. I promise you, like in him and in Christ, you will be safe. Like, you, you need to feel significant, church. Like While you were still sinners, Christ came and he died for you. Like, he laid down his life for you. Like in the middle of these different things that he talks about, like even when we were these things, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, lives, thieves, liars, thieves, covetous, drunkards, homosexuals, effeminate, revelers, swindlers, while we were in the middle of these things, while we were defined by these things, Christ still came and he died on your behalf so that you could be washed and so that you could be justified and declared righteous so that um, you could be sanctified and set apart as holy. Church, like I promise you, you are significant to God. Like Zephaniah is going to say, he delights in us and he rejoices over us with singing. Like he, he, Jeremiah is going to say that he knew you while you were in your mother's womb. And Luke 12 is going to say that he knows the number of hairs that are upon your head. Like John's going to say that as many as have received him, to them he's given the right to be called children of God. Genesis is going to say that every man, woman, and child has been created in his image and given infinite value and dignity as an image bearer of God. Paul's going to say we're actually his workmanship, meaning he thought about us. He gave us plans and he gave us work to do. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which he's already prepared in advance for us to work in. Church, I promise you, you're significant to God. I promise you, like, you're valuable to God. Why in the world would we go anywhere else to find value and significance? We don't need the applause of our friends or we don't, we don't need the applause of social media or any of these different kinds of things. Like, you don't need self-promotion or flattery or self-help because everything your soul longs for, Jesus satisfies. Like, and he just keeps going in this sermon. He just says, blessed are the merciful for they're going to be shown mercy. Anybody needing mercy? Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart for they're going to be able to see God. Anyone else longing to see God, kind of like Moses where you're crying out, Lord, show me your glory. Lord, show me your glory just that I'd be able to behold your face just a little bit more. I love the way that the psalmist says it, one of my favorite verses I've held on to since high school, but in Psalm 27, 4, he says, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I shall seek is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to be able to behold his beauty and to be able to meditate in his temple. Church, it's exactly what he is promising right here. He's the reward. Blessed are the pure in heart. You're going to be able to see me. You're going to be able to behold my glory. He is the reward. Blessed are the poor in spirit because poverty is the way to Jesus. Like blessed are those who mourn because he is the better comfort. You always get God. He is the reward. Blessed are the meek because they're going to inherit the earth along with Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because everything that your soul longs for, Jesus satisfies. Blessed are the merciful because Jesus is merciful. 
Blessed are the pure in heart because they get to actually see Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers because they're going to be called children of Jesus, the peacemaking king. Blessed are the persecuted because they're always going to have Jesus and his grace is sufficient even into eternity. Church, he is always, always, always the reward. He has always been the reward. He's not just a means to a better end, but he is actually the end. It's why in chapter 6 when he's teaching his disciples how to pray, I mean, he says, he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by other people. In other words, don't be like them. Like, don't go out there and just, just pray in order to be seen and rewarded by other people. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, and then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words, here's what I want to know. Do you still want to pray when there's no other reward to be found except for me? Like, do you still want to pray when there's nothing else to be gained except my presence and the joy of knowing me and seeing me and beholding my glory? That's what I want to know. Church, that's what you get. When you come to him in faith and in the poverty of your spirit, you're always going to get Jesus. When you agree with his word that there's none who are righteous, not even one, when you agree with his word that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, like, and you identify in that place when you come to him in this spiritual poverty, recognizing that I am in desperate need of his power and grace, not just today, but for all of eternity, right? When you come to him in faith and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and you will always, always, always have Jesus. And that's incredible news because everything that your soul has always longed for, he satisfies, he satisfies. He is the reward of the blessed life. Always, 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 you will always get God. And to those of you who know your spiritual poverty, that is going to be music to your ears. I'll never forget one of my favorite places I've ever had a chance to preach was Kigali, Rwanda, a number of years ago. I had a chance to go visit a group of widows and orphans that were still grieving nearly 10 years later from the Rwandan genocide in 1994. Over a million people slaughtered in a 100-day period. Went to go visit this community of widows and orphans that were left over from this community. And I didn't have to convince them of their poverty before the Lord. Like they knew what poverty felt like. Began preaching through the Beatitudes. Began preaching through the blessings of God. Began preaching through the favor that they can have in him. Began preaching through their identity. Everything that God has given to them in every single way that he satisfies every longing of their soul. One of the most beautiful worship services that ensued after that time together. They got up there, and if you've ever been to a culture like that, I mean, they have a way of singing and praising that just puts us to shame to some degree. I mean, there's no, nobody looking at watches or clocks, kind of going, okay, when's this thing done? Or you kind of went a little bit too long. I mean, literally, they're dancing in the aisles. They're singing. They're praising God. It's one of the most joyful celebrations I've ever been a part of. Because to those who are spiritually impoverished, like this whole message is music to your ears. You will always, 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 always get God. But to those of you who are self-sufficient, it'll never be enough. It'll never be enough. The question that Jesus presents us is very, very simple. Church, which camp do you find yourself in? Are you in the self-righteous? Are you in the self-sufficient? Are you in the haves group that has everything in the world going for you? Are you in the impoverished have-not group? Only one of them is going to lead to blessing because only one of them is going to lead you to Jesus.